All right, Wrestling With Theology fans, this is Pastor Doug Minton standing in the confessional corner this Monday afternoon, still looking at Apology Article 5 on love and fulfilling the law. Today, we're going to look at paragraphs 133 through 150 as we continue to see the idea that the law is not kept and cannot be kept if you are not in Christ. So we start off in paragraph 133. Certain other passages about works are also cited against us. Forgive and you will be forgiven, Luke 6.37. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry? Then you shall call and the Lord will answer, Isaiah 58, 7 and 9. Break off your sins by showing mercy to the oppressed, Daniel 4.27. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 5, 3, and blessed are the merciful, for they shall receive mercy, Matthew 5, 7. Even these passages would contain nothing contrary to us if the adversaries would not falsely attach something to them, for they contain two things. One is a preaching of either the law or of repentance. This preaching not only convicts those doing wrong, but also commands them to do what is right. The other is a promise that is added. But it is not said that sins are forgiven without faith, or that works themselves are an atoning sacrifice. Furthermore, these two things should always be understood in the preaching of the law. First, the law cannot be obeyed unless we have been reborn through faith in Christ. Just as Christ says in John 15:5, apart from me, you can do nothing. Second, some outward works can certainly be done. But this general judgment, which interprets the whole law, must be retained. Without faith, it is impossible to please God. Hebrews 11.6 The gospel must also be retained that through Christ we have access to the Father. See Hebrews 10.19 and Romans 5.2 For it is clear that we are not justified by the law. Otherwise, why would we need Christ or the gospel? If the preaching of the law alone would be enough. So in the preaching of repentance, it is not enough to preach the law or the word that convicts of sin. The law works wrath and only accuses. The law terrifies consciences because consciences never are at rest unless they hear God's voice clearly promising the forgiveness of sins. So the gospel must be added that for Christ's sake, sins are forgiven and that we obtain the forgiveness of sins by faith in Christ. If the adversaries exclude Christ's gospel from the preaching of repentance, they are rightly judged blasphemers against Christ. All right, so those are the first couple of passages that are used outside of what has already been talked about last week. But the focus here is our focus phrase for this week. The law cannot be obeyed unless we have been reborn through faith in Christ. And my then points to John 15, 5, where Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Apart from me, you can do nothing. And then secondly, we must remember God's own words from Hebrews eleven six. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. And this is the point that Hebrews 11 makes over and over again as we go through the Hall of Fame of Old Testament saints, is that you cannot please God if you do not have faith. It doesn't matter how many good works you do, if you do not have faith in the coming Messiah, you cannot please God. That's the Old Testament right there, Hebrews 11. Us in the New Testament church and post-New Testament, the same thing. 
We can do all the works we want to do. We can receive all the accolades for the things we do and all the pats on the back. But if it's not done with faith in Christ, if it is not done by someone reborn through the waters of baptism, it doesn't count. In fact, even for those that do do it on the basis of their baptism into Christ and their faith in Christ, it still doesn't count for anything towards God except for fruits of our faith. And that is the point that all of these passages are taking into consideration. Forgiven, you will be forgiven. It's not a, you do this and this will happen. No. You know, break off your sins by showing mercy to the oppressed from Daniel 4. Okay, there we go. What do you need to do? You need to break off your sins. How is a way you can do that? Showing mercy to the oppressed. These words were delivered to Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon who went the way of the animals for seven years. That is all in Daniel chapter 4. And this is what it is. To break off from his sins and to show mercy to the oppressed. And again, what about the merciful that they shall receive mercy from the Beatitudes? Well, again, it's the idea of you reap what you sow. If you are merciful, it's because you have been shown mercy already. And your mercy will reap more mercy coming your way. It's not you have to first work up a way to be merciful and then God will be merciful to you. No, it is simply that you show mercy. You forgive because you have been shown mercy. You have been forgiven. That is the point Melanchthon is trying to make in this section. Because what does the law do? The law terrifies consciences because consciences never are at rest unless they hear God's voice clearly promising the forgiveness of sins. You want peace in your heart? It is that knowledge that your sins are forgiven, that you have been shown mercy by God. That is the only way you have peace in your heart. That is the only way your conscience is at rest. We continue on in paragraphs 137 through 139. Isaiah preaches repentance as follows. Cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Isaiah 1, 16-18 So the prophet both urges repentance and adds the promise. But in such a sentence, it would be foolish to consider only the words correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless. For he says in the beginning, cease to do evil, where he criticizes impiety of heart and requires faith. Also, the prophet does not say that through the works correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, they can merit the forgiveness of sins by the outward act. There we are with our ex opera operato again. But he insists that such works are necessary in the new life. At the same time, he means that the forgiveness of sins is received through faith. So the promise is added. We must understand all similar passages in this way. Christ preaches repentance when he says forgive, and he adds the promise, and you will be forgiven, Luke 6, 37. He does not say that when we forgive, we merit the forgiveness of sins by our outward act, as they term it. But he requires a new life, which certainly is necessary. 
At the same time, he means that forgiveness of sins is received through faith. So when Isaiah says, share your bread with the hungry, in chapter 58, verse 7, he requires a new life. Nor does the prophet speak of this work alone, but as the text shows, of the entire repentance. At the same time, he means that the forgiveness of sins is received through faith. For the following is sure, and none of the gates of hell can overthrow it. The preaching of the law is not enough in the preaching of repentance. This is true because the law works wrath and always accuses. But the preaching of the gospel should be added so that forgiveness of sins is granted us. Our sins are forgiven if we believe that our sins are forgiven for Christ's sake. Otherwise, why would we need the gospel? Why would we need Christ? This belief should always be in view so that it may oppose those who cast Christ and the gospel aside and wickedly distort the scriptures to human opinions, such as the idea that we purchase the forgiveness of sins by our works. A couple of things here from paragraph 137, with the quote from Isaiah chapter 1, we, he says, we cannot just look at the words, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless. This is the cry of the woke movement going through our society now, is that we need to seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice. And the problem is, it is not really justice. It's a revenge tactic that they want to bring not only equality, but they want to surpass their own in the equality and bring back, really, if you want to boil it down, bring back slavery where it's the whites that are enslaved to the blacks this time. But that could just be my opinion of their rhetoric. But really, that's where it logically goes. Paragraph 138, we have this idea that he repeats over and over again. Forgiveness is not a one-time act. Forgiveness is a lifestyle. It cannot be just once and you got it. Then what happens when you decide not to forgive somebody? Well, do you lose it then? Well, that's totally preaching of the law and not preaching of repentance in its truest form, because you need both the preaching of the law and the preaching of the gospel to have repentance preached properly, to have forgiveness preached properly. He goes on into paragraphs 140 through 143, taking up the quotation from Daniel chapter 4. Faith is required also in the sermon of Daniel from chapter 4, verses 24 to 27. For Daniel did not mean that the king should only give alms. He includes repentance when he says, break off your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, in verse 27. This means break off your sins by a change of heart and works. Here also faith is required. Daniel proclaims to him many things about the worship of the only God, the God of Israel. He converts the king not only to give alms, but much more to have faith. For we have the excellent confession of the king about the God of Israel. There is no other God who is able to rescue in this way. From Daniel chapter 3, verse 29. Therefore, in Daniel's sermon, there are two parts. One part gives a commandment about the new life and the works of the new life. In the other part, Daniel promises the forgiveness of sins to the king. This promise of the forgiveness of sins is not a preaching of the law, but a truly prophetic and evangelical voice. Daniel certainly meant that the promise should be received in faith. 
For Daniel knew that the forgiveness of sins in Christ was promised not only to the Israelites, but also to all nations. Otherwise, he could not have promised to the king the forgiveness of sins. For without God's sure word about his will, a person has no power to claim, especially when terrified by sin, that God ceases to be angry. In his own language, Daniel speaks clearly about repentance and even more clearly brings out the promise. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. These words teach about all of repentance. They direct the king to become righteous, then to do good works, to defend the miserable against injustice, as was the king's duty. Righteousness is faith in the heart. Furthermore, sins are redeemed by repentance. In other words, the obligation or guilt is removed because God forgives those who repent, as it is written in Ezekiel 18, 21 and 22. Nor are we to conclude from this that he forgives on account of works that follow on account of alms. Rather, he forgives only those who take hold of it on account of his promise. Only those who truly believe take hold of this promise and through faith overcome sin and death. These, being reborn, should produce fruit worthy of repentance, just as John the Baptist says in Matthew 3.8. The promise, therefore, was added. There may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity, Daniel 4.27. Jerome expresses some doubt here, which is beside the matter. In his commentaries, he argues much more unwisely that the forgiveness of sins is uncertain. But let us remember that the gospel gives a sure promise of the forgiveness of sins. To deny that there must be a sure promise of the forgiveness of sins would completely abolish the gospel. Let us dismiss Jerome concerning this passage. The promise is displayed even in the words break off, for it shows that the forgiveness of sins is possible, that sins can be redeemed, that is, that their obligation or guilt can be removed, or God's anger can be appeased. But our adversaries, overlooking the promises everywhere, consider only the laws. They falsely attach the human opinion that forgiveness happens on account of works. The text does not say this, but instead requires faith. For wherever a promise is, their faith is required. For a promise cannot be received unless through faith. What Melanchthon points out here is a difference in the definition of righteousness, which again he will tackle in Article 12, another one that is divided up into two parts. But here in paragraph 142, he makes the very poignant, pointed statement, righteousness is faith in the heart. There is no better definition for righteousness than faith in the heart. And what does that faith do? A few lines down. He, being Christ, forgives only those who take hold of it on account of his promise. Only those who truly believe take hold of this promise and through faith overcome sin and death. These being reborn should produce fruit worthy of repentance. That is the entire point. Righteousness by the gospel, by God's will, happens when we produce fruit by faith that comes from the heart. So we got a long section to read here from paragraph 144 to 150, the end of our reading today. And this is really the point between going against the vertical, which is where the Roman theologians want to go with our works, to the horizontal. Because he starts off, works are recognizable among human beings. We know 
good people, air quotes there, uh, when we see them because they do good works. Now, we don't know if they're good people or not. We just know they do good things, things that seem good to us. Now, whether they are good in the eyes of the Lord, we do not know because that is not our job. But it continues on. Human reason naturally admires works. Reason sees only works and does not understand or consider faith. Therefore, it dreams that these works merit forgiveness of sins and justify. This opinion of the law naturally sticks in people's minds. It cannot be driven out unless we are divinely taught. The mind must be recalled from such earthly opinions to God's word. We see that the gospel and the promise about Christ have been laid before us. When, therefore, the law is preached, when works are commanded, we should not reject the promise about Christ. But the promise must first be grasped in order that we may be able to produce good works pleasing to God. As Christ says, apart from me, you can do nothing. John 15, 5 again. Therefore, if Daniel would have used words like these, redeem your sins by repentance, the adversaries would not have noticed this passage. Since Daniel has actually expressed this thought in other words, the adversaries distort his words to the harm of the doctrine of grace and faith. However, Daniel meant that his words most especially to include faith. Therefore, we respond to the words of Daniel as follows. Since he is preaching repentance, he is teaching not only about works, but also about faith, as the story itself testifies in the context. Second, because Daniel clearly presents the promise, he necessarily requires faith, which believes that sins are freely forgiven by God. In repentance, he mentions works, yet he does not say that we merit the forgiveness of sins by these works. Daniel speaks not only about the forgiveness of the punishment, for forgiveness of the punishment is sought in vain unless the heart first receives the forgiveness of guilt. Besides, if the adversaries understood Daniel as speaking only about the forgiveness of punishment, this passage will prove nothing against us. It will then become necessary for them also to confess that the forgiveness of sin and free justification come before good works. Afterward, even we can see that the punishments by which we are chastised are soothed. This happens by our prayers, by our good works, and finally by our entire repentance, according to 1 Corinthians 11.31. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. And he goes on to cite a few more passages. If you return, I will restore you, Jeremiah 15.19. Return to me, says the Lord of hosts, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts, Zechariah 1.3. Call upon me in the day of trouble, Psalm 50.18. Therefore, in all our praising of works and in the preaching of the law, let us keep this rule. The law is not kept without Christ. As he himself has said, apart from me you can do nothing, John 15, 5, once again. Likewise, without faith it is impossible to please God, Hebrews eleven six again. For it is very certain that the doctrine of the law is not intended to remove the gospel and to remove Christ as the atoning sacrifice. Let the Pharisees, our adversaries, be cursed. They interpret the law to assign Christ's glory to works. In other words, they say works are an atoning sacrifice, that they merit the forgiveness of sins. Works are always rightly praised in this way. They are pleasing because of faith. For works do not please without Christ as the atoning sacrifice. Through him we have obtained access to God, Romans 5.2, not by works without Christ as mediator. Therefore, when it is said in Matthew 19:17, if you would enter life, keep the commandments, we must believe that without Christ, the commandments are not kept and cannot please. So in the Decalogue itself, in the first commandment, the most liberal promise of the law is added, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Exodus 20, verse 6. 
but this law is not kept without Christ, for it always accuses the conscience that it does not satisfy the law. Therefore the conscience flies in terror from the law's judgment and punishment, for the law works anger, Romans 4.15. A person keeps the law when he hears that for Christ's sake God is reconciled to us, even though we cannot satisfy the law. When Christ is apprehended as mediator through this faith, the heart finds rest and begins to love God and to keep the law. It knows that now, because of Christ as mediator, it is pleasing to God, even though the incomplete fulfilling of the law is far from perfection and is very impure. We must conclude this about the preaching of repentance. For although the scholastics have said nothing at all about faith and the doctrine of repentance, yet we think that none of our adversaries is so mad as to deny that absolution is a voice of the gospel, and absolution ought to be received through faith, in order that it may comfort the terrified conscience. So far our reading this week. Again, as he started off in paragraphs 133 through 136, the law cannot be kept except through Christ, so also he ends that the law cannot be kept without Christ. And he even goes so far as to say that if the adversaries would truly understand and confess, they would say that the absolution given after confession is a promise of the gospel, a promise of the forgiveness of sins. But as we have seen before, and we'll see again, the Roman Absolution is not really an absolution because it is a way to help you try to satisfy your conscience by doing good works, thinking that by them you will be saved, by them you will be forgiven, by them you will merit what you want in this life. And that's not in the Bible. I'm sorry, it's not. And we'll go on into that next week as we pick up in paragraph 151, continuing on with the doctrine of repentance. But for this week, this is Pastor Doug Minton, wishing you God's richest blessings as we continue to stand in the confessional corner, saying what it is that we Lutherans believe, teach, confess, so that you may wrestle with the theologies around you. Amen.